Welcome to Behind the Stethoscope, Episode 9. My name is Gerald DeRosa, and I have uh, Samir Mahotra with me uh, hosting the episode today. As you all know, this podcast is a chance for our local physicians from Royal Columbian Hospital, Eagle Ridge, and in the community between us to connect. Uh, each show, we try and have the opportunity to get to know someone from the community beyond their day jobs get to know their various backgrounds and their experiences and their specialties. I'm pleased to do this podcast that Samir and I have been thinking about for a while, where we have uh, some of our residents from the internal medicine program who are going to bring us back in time and hopefully remind us what it was like uh, to be a resident, because for some of us, that was a while ago. I won't say how long. And so we'll get started here. And so to start with, I'll let each of the residents introduce themselves. Each of them is from the Resident Wellness Committee from a few different years from the Internal Medicine Program. And I very much appreciate the time that they're taking to join us today. So maybe we'll start with you, Carmen, and then we'll go on to you can just let us little know a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go to the next person. Hi, I'm Carmen, one of the R2s in the internal medicine program. I just want to say thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's been really quite a, a challenging year for wellness with COVID and the pandemic. So I think it's really exciting to be able to talk about this and share with you guys how things have been going. So thanks so much. Yeah, hi, my name's, uh, my name's Darren. I'm also an R2 in the program. been in Vancouver all my life. I'm excited to talk about my experiences this year. I look forward to chatting further. Hey, I'm Natanya. I'm one of the R1s in the internal medicine program. And I'm also really excited to be on this podcast. And lots of thanks to Dr. DeRosa and Maholtra for featuring residents on this podcast and taking time to highlight residents' experiences and voice. So thank you for including me in that. Great. So I think obviously we'll hit COVID at some point in time, but I didn't necessarily want to start with this being a COVID podcast because I think everyone's kind of COVIDed out right now. So, you know, I think, you know, Carmen, when You know, I remember that you're pretty involved in the wellness program. I remember when you brought a whole bunch of chocolates to Royal Columbian or care packages, I think it was to Royal Columbian Hospital from the wellness committee to distribute to the residents. So, you know, as a person who's been doing a lot of wellness in the program, what do you feel like? How do you feel the residents are doing? What kind of pressures are they facing right now? You know, even just without COVID, like residency itself, you know, how how's your experience been? How's your colleagues' experiences been? I know it's a broad question, but yeah, it's a pretty big topic in and of itself. So I'll try to try to answer and see if anyone else have things to jump in with. But I think that after with being involved with the wellness committee, it's been really nice to be able to do these kind of check-ins with my co-residents of the different years to see how people are doing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges normally as it is with the transitions that happen, just with being at different um, hospitals, just with call and the weather changing. Um, but I would say that I think this year has been a bit tougher because I think being part of the residency program is nice because you have that community of other people who Um, are kind of going through the same thing as you. You have people that you can kind of reach out to and rely on. But what a lot of this year we've missed out on, I think, is building some of those connections early on, especially with the R1s. And so I think it's been tougher to feel like we have that sense of community and that sense of like identity as a program, which I felt really helped me through my first year as as a R1. And now I, I, you know, I go to work and I enjoy going to work because I feel like it's in a way nice to see my co-residents because that's the only time I can really socialize. But there's there's a sense of loss in a way that we're not being able to we're not able to connect in the same way that we normally would otherwise. Um, and I've been hearing that a lot from um, not only from the R ones but from people in my year, the R threes. Everyone feels that loss of connection. And I think that's unfortunately a really big part of being well, I think. It's one of the key things that I think helped me in terms of being well is having those relationships. So I think it's something that we've all been struggling with this year. What I've been hearing from R1s, from R2s and R3s alike have been that you know, they wish that they were getting to know the other, like the new residents, they wish that they were getting to know other people in the program. And I think unfortunately, that's been Um, a a big challenge for us with the wellness committee to try to bridge those gaps. And I remember when we were brainstorming how we could, you know, welcome the new R1s into the year and into the program, we couldn't do any social activities at all. And with our program being as big as it is, it's just not possible to do anything together as a group. And I remember we were just trying to brainstorm like, like, how else could we welcome them to show 
them that, you know, we want them in the program and we want, and we're excited to have them, even if we can't actually, you know, meet every single one. And that's kind of where that idea for the call, it was kind of like a call survival kit and a bag of goodies so that people were, you know, would feel at least that people in the program cared about them, even if they weren't able to meet in person. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I remember as a resident is a lot of uh, surviving residency was venting with your colleagues, right? And like getting together, you know, after half day, going out for dinner, uh, having some drinks and just talking about your experiences and complaining about your attendings and stuff like that. So um, I'm guessing that you guys can't do that as often anymore. Is that right, Darren? I would yeah, I would say so. I would say that we still find ways to chat, which is nice. Like Carmen and I have our little group chat where we uh, we still have our virtual events, which is nice. But I totally agree. I think it has been really challenging. I think the other thing that's been especially challenging for a lot of us, either with older parents or with family members who aren't in medicine, is trying to balance being a resident who's taking care of patients, some of which have some of whom have COVID, with also being like. Like for me, being like a new uncle and I don't feel comfortable seeing my niece because I don't want to expose her to anyone who could be sick. And then because my parents are playing a big role in taking care of her, I've found that that's been really challenging for me. And I've heard similar things from other people with families as well. And Natanya, I guess you and I go way back since I uh, interviewed you for to get into the program. And I remember we talked about the Packers and football. We didn't actually talk that much about medicine, <laughs> um, which was great. But I mean, you know, what Carmen and Darren are identifying, you know, you repre- you're a member of the R1 class. You're actually, you know, from out of the country. So, you know, what's it been like for you and your peers? Like you're, I, I'd imagine you're feeling some of these same things. Yeah, I think Carmen and Darren put it really well. I think we all had a lot of hopes and dreams about what it means to like move to a new place, make new friends. Like I love to cook and love to, I had all these ideas about hosting all my new friends and colleagues at my house. And you know, that it really changes your way of, of, of uh, making new relationships. And that's not to say that that hasn't happened. I think most of my colleagues have at least a friend, if not more than one friend, even people from out of province or out of country, where I think by this point, many of my friends have somebody who they can vent to, whether that's me or someone else, which is nice. But I think it took a lot longer than it otherwise would have. I think it takes a lot of face time to really trust that when you kind of unload really challenging experiences with patients or at work that are sometimes unpleasant or sometimes emotionally draining. It's it's not with anyone that I think people feel comfortable doing that. And um, I feel really lucky to have made some friends um, in the program, but I think it took a lot longer to feel that level of kind of safety uh, in our community than it would have otherwise. I was just thinking back to when I was in residency and I would imagine a lot of things have obviously changed, perhaps, perhaps not. But I'm sort of curious what your day looks like for you. COVID aside for a moment, and maybe not even for you, but just generally for a resident, if uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe Carmen, just sharing your general perspective on what a day in, in the life of a resident might be right now. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I can only really speak for myself because I know that other people probably have different, uh, different routines, but I'll say right off the bat, I'm not, I like to think of myself as a morning person, but I know inherently I am not. So, Mornings are really hard for me. And I think usually like my routine is I'll get up about an hour, hour and a half before I need to get to work just so I can start the day off right. And then I'll get to work and I usually will try to show up on a day where not, or I'll try to show up a little bit earlier so that I have some preparation to my day and that I'm not feeling too rushed because I think that does make a big difference in how my day will go. And then, you know, the day will unfold predictably or unpredictably. And then Usually when I get home, the things that I like to do are, I usually will take like 30 minutes, 45 minutes just for myself to decompress from the day and not have to think about work or like learning or anything like that. And then I usually try to just make a meal for myself because I find that when I cook, it makes me feel a lot better internally. It just like helps. It's a bit therapeutic for me. So I enjoy cooking. And then truthfully, I sleep quite early because I'm also not a morning person. So it, uh, I find that my, my evenings feel very short because of that, because I go to sleep by like nine o'clock um, so that I can feel refreshed for the next day. But yeah, I feel like that's kind of my usual routine. I don't know if I do anything too special with it, but 
Darren or Natanya, if you have any extra thoughts on how you spend your time? So, I mean, I think there's, there's what a day should look like for me and what a day actually looks like for me. <laughs> and, uh, and so, like, I think the days, like, like a nice eight to five day, like if I have one of those, then what I'll do is, like, the day ends and I will, like, I'll do, like, a headspace meditation or, like, the day ends and I'll go, like, if it's the summer and it's nice out or something like that, I'll go for a bike ride. And then I'll come home and I'll like, I will, as, as you said, like make dinner with my partner and then maybe do a bit of reading and go to bed early. But like when the day ends at eight, I watch like two episodes of Modern Family and then like go to bed. It's like, a, that's, that's what my days look like when uh, that's a bit longer. But yeah, I think it's a balance. I think it's hard. I think it's whatever you need. As you said, you carve out time for yourself. And if that is, if that is Modern Family, that's Modern Family. And I think that's, that's what you need. Oh, well, thanks for sharing. And I, I, I do agree. Like there's that routine and that balance. And Natanya, I'm sort of curious, you know, you're an R1 now, and when you were in med school, being on call was probably different than what it is now as an R1. And I'm interested to hear from that transition for you. Like how, how have you had to adapt? Or again, it doesn't have to be you, just the general perspective from the residents and whole, maybe from what you've heard from colleagues. What is call like and how does it affect you and your colleagues? Call has been a very interesting experience. As somebody who trained in the States, actually, we don't do a lot of calls. So as a, as a medical student, but my call experience prior to residency was when I was on electives here. So I was always treated with a lot of respect and patience and like sent to bed early because I was always on a ways. And my seniors, I was very gifted with wonderful seniors who knew how important it was for me to present well in the morning for my staff. And so I think it's been really a good challenge, I think, to try to think on my feet and use my brain in the middle of the night. I think that's definitely the hardest thing. Um, It helps when I've had really great seniors again, who helped me out at at 3.30 a.m. with a consult, which Darren did just last week on cross coverage, which was really nice. Um, I really appreciate it when, especially when my senior and when the CTU team who are there on call overnight, everyone just is really supportive and happy to run over the case with me. I think it's really nice to be able to talk through cases with people. And I think calls are pretty reasonable with some exceptions. And I think some of my peers have been blessed with the very quiet calls and some people get kind of slammed during call and that variability I think helps kind of you on your feet and also can make post-call days either really really enjoyable or just sleeping so I think I think in general it's been okay and the the best the best call nights I've I can remember are ones where the people I'm working with are really supportive and really a pleasure to keep company with so I'm wondering if I could ask you guys you know like what I'd like to do is capture all the different things that are impacting your kind of life and your wellness, right? So for example, I would say, you know, as a resident, you're still trying to learn. You're still trying to perform well in front of your attending, right? You're still trying to be a good doctor and, you know, you probably, you know, are concerned about your patient's outcomes. Are you doing a good job? You know, you're being evaluated at the same time that you're doing your job. And then there's exams, career. So, I mean, maybe if each of you, you know, we start with Darren. I know you're the class rep, so that people probably come to you with their concerns and stuff like that. Can you list a few things that are not necessarily your own personal concerns, but like, because, you know, it'd be nice for, I think, the attendant, you know, people who are listening who have students and residents to just, there's probably some things we're not thinking of. Like, for, I'll just give you an example. We did not write the Royal College exam in year three when we were in trauma medicine. Okay. And I'm not sure if everyone knows that you guys are writing the exam in year three in trauma medicine now. So that was not a stressor that we faced as a core internal medicine resident um, having that exam, you know, in third year, right? So, you know, maybe you could think of a few things off the top of your head. We kind of bounce it around and see if there's other things that each of, you know, Carmen and Natanya that you can add on to that. Obviously, it gets harder when you get to the end of the chain because everyone's mentioned the stuff before. But, you know, like, like it's just I'm curious, you know, are there stuff that I don't know? That's, you know, that's really, you know, at the forefront of your thoughts or that, you know, that are challenging you guys each day. Yeah. So, I mean, I think obviously this is a, an exceptional time with COVID, but I think the, the biggest issue that's come up or the biggest thing that people have brought to me as, as the RTC rep has been the uncertainty around out of province electives and even the uncertainty around doing subspecialty electives in province and how that will look. So if you're interested in more of an outpatient specialty like endocrinology or rheumatology and, you know, with the, with the shift towards 
telehealth? Like, how can you, I don't know, how can you still demonstrate the same level of competence to your supervisors and get the quality reference letters that you need to, to match these specialties? I think that's come up quite a bit. Also for the people, I think if you if you want to end up in, in BC, the, the canceling of out-of-province electives may not be as big of a deal for you. But if you're interested in, say, if you're from like, I don't know, Dalhousie, or you're from like Newfoundland or something like that, and you want to go back there, and you, you can't, I think that regardless of what people say about like how strong your left references are and how much research you've done, I think there is something extremely valuable about FaceTime with, with different people. And, and so I think that's been another big concern. If you want to match somewhere out of province, not being able to go there to show face. Those are a couple of the things I think that have come up. And obviously those things have sprung out of COVID, but I still think they're valid. Mm-hmm. So from your point of view, like career is still... You know, it's always a concern when you're a resident. I remember being concerned about, you know, what I wanted to do and if I was going to get the fellowship that I wanted. But it sounds like in the current climate, there's a certain degree of difficulty that makes it even more challenging to even, you know, just like forming relationships with your peers, you know, even forming relationships with staff people uh, seems to be a bit more challenging here in this current climate. Is that right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'd also say that it's that level of uncertainty that comes with it. I think from when we look at previous years, there's a there's a predictability to, you know, what the schedule will be like for CARMS and, you know, the opportunities that you'll have that you can set up and you have some control over. Now, there everything feels like it's so up in the air that it feels hard to even plan in the short term for what's going to happen. And I think that loss of control over your future where there's like so much impact in terms of your career and like where you end up I think that's really scary for a lot of us. Oftentimes I find myself just thinking about all of the things that it takes to be a good resident and that is you know how does the EMR work where I'm going where is what information in the chart like it was so nice to go back to Royal Columbian after I was there block one went back for CTU block five or six and I knew some of the nursing staff, I knew allied health, I knew the unit coordinator, I knew where the labs were, the vitals, like I found myself so much more efficient. And that type of thing, I think is still happening. I won't be at VGH really for an inpatient rotation until block seven. So that is still happening, I think, for a lot of residents and trying to figure out the mental gymnastics of working with a new staff and working with new seniors and everyone likes and prefers for their own reasons, a variety of presentation styles or information that you can report. And everyone has to develop trust with each other and getting more comfortable with that learning process, but also also on the line of uncertainty, like getting more comfortable myself with the uncertainty that comes with each new rotation, with my responsibilities, with my training level with what people will trust me with, with what I trust myself with, that is often in flux. And I think that's probably where I spend a lot of my cognitive energy outside of the learning and all the things I need to learn to take care of my patients and worrying about my patients. And that's something that I hear from all my friends and my peers is it's just learning to be a resident takes a lot of time. Do you think like, cause you guys are flipping from site to site to site, community sites, academic sites, different specialties. Do you think that we as you know, attendings, and I'm just generalizing, like, do we do a good job kind of like recognizing that and saying, oh, this is your first day, you don't necessarily know? Or do is it more like a kind of sink or swim? Like, I kind of remember as a resident, it was kind of sink or swim, you know, like, <laughs> here's the list. These are the patients, go find them, you know, and, uh, and then we'll meet back at 11. And you're just kind of sitting there going, yeah, okay. Uh, so where do I actually go here? But I don't know if it's any different. But What do you guys think? I I think that for the most part, like I find that for CTU, you know, we get, you get the emails from the chiefs and I find that usually you're kind of starting your block at the same time as the staff is starting the block too. So I think, I feel like everyone's kind of on the same page. Um, I think with subspecialties, I do find, my experience has been that most, you know, subspecialty rotations I've been on, I've been on with staff or fellows that have been at least good with kind of directing how things go for the first day. But of course, that always depends on how busy things are. I think it's funny that you brought this up because 
that's actually personally something I've been thinking a lot about recently because I haven't been at VGH for all of 2020. Uh, it's actually been exactly a year since I've been at VGH and I'm going to be there in January doing a senior block when it's, I know it's been pretty busy too. So it's very much on my mind in terms of how do you actually senior, but also figure out how to do all of these basic fundamental things that I just, I just haven't done in so long. I just like, I haven't even written in a physical chart in, in months because I've been at St. Paul's. So it's, it's just like the small challenges like that. And I know, and I'm sure that if I asked for the help too, it would be there, but I feel there's always that internal pressure that, you know, you, you need to be able to kind of hit the ground running and just know everything that's going on. But I think it's it's that constant reminder that it's okay if I don't know, I can always ask for it. Chris, with, you know, you mentioned transitions is a key part in, in how you're training and how you're learning. I, you know, I've heard that, you know, the professional identity is something that you're learning about. And at the same time, you're learning how to be a resident in internal medicine. And that changes each time you're on a different rotation. But with these transitions, if you look back and sort of reflect back and what you've done thus far, would there be, again, this is not necessarily to each of you, but just generally from your, from your class or classmates, things that you would change or things that you would tell someone who's coming from medical school into first year or first year resident going into second year? Like when I work with medical students, I often remind them that people really remember the people they enjoyed to work with. And that's true for, I think, all of us. And it's not so much about what you know, uh, which is a really good reminder to myself. I tell myself that often <laughs> um, when I'm struggling with that type of thought process in my own mind, that it's okay if you don't know the answer. We all are learning all the time and trying to develop the skills to find that answer and then to be a pleasant and enjoyable person to work with and to work hard and to want to care for the as a team member and to care for patients, I think is the most important thing. What I would say is just work hard and enjoy what you're doing and the knowledge will come and it's okay if you say that you don't know. I, it's totally fine to say that you don't know the answer. We all don't know things, that's normal. Absolutely, it's a good process to learn, important too. And on a similar vein, I often think about this myself and I'm curious to hear from you guys. Mentorship, it never, and you never stop getting mentored whether you're in a medical school or a resident in fellowship or in, in training, there's always a level of mentorship. And what do you guys and your classmates and generally residents and see in the parts that really make a successful relationship as a mentor and someone in a learning process or a learning environment? I, I would say that I think, I think a successful mentorship relationship is built on trust and transparency. So I think that Oftentimes, kind of as Natanya and Carmen have alluded to, and Dr. DeRosa was talking about, on these rotations, we, we are trying to impress and we're trying to learn. And at the end of the day, we're being evaluated. So sometimes I think it can be challenging to form these relationships with staff when you almost always want to be putting your best foot forward. But I think that being able to be vulnerable in front of a staff is where you can have, or you, where you can build some of those most, uh, some of those very meaningful connections that I think can really facilitate growth, both, prof both professionally and personally. So I've found that actually creating structured mentorship opportunities through like, like the academic coaches, for example, has been really helpful. So I'm really happy that the program has built that in for us because oftentimes those academic coaches you don't, I've never worked with my academic coach on CTU before, but I'm able to talk with her candidly about my experiences and she's able to ask me probing questions. And because she is a academic general internist, she has seen other residents go through the same struggles that I have. And I think with that, I guess, trusting relationship, I'm able to get a lot more out of it. And I don't feel like I'm being evaluated. I don't feel like I have to put on a certain, I don't know, I don't feel like I have to present myself in a certain way. I think that's the key to successful mentorship. I guess one of my questions for you guys is, you know, knowing what you're facing, right? And especially now forming relationships is more challenging. How do we as attendings, right? Like be mindful of that. How do we make your experience better? You know, because I think that's what a lot of people would want to say is like, it's how do we, do we try and take some time to talk about life? Do we, you know, like, is it nice to go out for a cup of coffee? Is it kind of weird to ask you how your how your life is and how you're doing? You know, like, is that, you know, like, sometimes I think people don't know if that's appropriate, right? As an attending, like, what, like, what would you guys, you know, feel or, or what makes a good attending to you when you're spending time with them? You know, what makes a good experience for you? What makes it 
positive so that like, you know, while it's a challenging time, you go to work and you have a good day, right? And you come back and you're like, oh, I, w- I enjoyed going to work today. I learned something. I enjoyed spending time with this person. Like, you know, what characteristics or what things have, have you guys experienced that, you know, we can pass on to the people listening? I think some of my favorite staff to work with have been those where I've found that, you know, it's, it's very, they're very approachable to, to me in terms of, I, I don't feel like there's any, there's much in the way of like intimidation or that there's this huge power dynamic when I'm asking questions. And, and I feel like it's nice when I get the sense that they, you know, are interested in me as like an individual as well as an individual in the program and as potentially a future colleague. So I do find that it's nice when, when staff, you know, like are asking about, you know, how your day was when you're post-call or, you know, how things are going. And I do, I've always, you know, I, I always appreciate the, the learning that I get from the staff and from, you know, the senior residents and everything. But I also really appreciate some of the, sometimes those like life chats that are spontaneous and um, aren't planned per se. I think those give you a lot of perspective into, you know, what makes someone the way that they are. And I find that it, again, like helps make that person more approachable to me and helps me to see them as well as like someone I can talk to about things if I ever feel stressed or if I feel like I'm, you know, overcoming some challenge as well. So I find that like approachability is like a really big thing for me when I, whenever I have a staff or, or a fellow that I want to, you know, that I feel like there's a good relationship there. Yeah, I agree. And something I'll add to that last part is that we see a lot of really challenging cases as residents, and that could be medically challenging, interpersonally challenging, emotionally challenging. And I always remember my seniors and my attendings who take the time to just talk about things that were hard and not just unpacking complicated medicine and teaching, which I agree with what Carmen said. I really appreciate that. And it helps the day be really enjoyable and something I look forward to. But the people I really feel like can connect with are the people who are willing to talk about the parts that are hard. And that includes like if there's a, for example, a code, like stopping to talk to the team when there's time afterwards and debriefing that. Or if there's um, a family meeting, no matter how it went, talking about that can be really helpful to, I think, build rapport and remind everyone that we're all kind of going through this together and that it's hard for everyone, which at the end of the day is what I think helps me feel more connected on a personal level to some of the more senior members of the team that I've worked with. I think Samir, you have some facility with that concept of the debrief. Is that right? Or yeah, I respect that. It, everything that's been suggested and it, it is an important part of our uh, learning process. And it's that socialization of medicine that is almost that hidden curriculum. And sometimes that feels like a, a challenging construct, but actually it can be very positive. And it's been there since the beginning of medicine in the sense that uh, it's the things that we may not learn in the curriculum, but are very important how we create culture, the working environment, working together, collegiality, and especially in the time of COVID, we've really seen how important it is to be connected, to sh- have compassion and show collegiality. And someone mentioned the world word vulnerability. And I, th- I think it takes a lot of courage, no matter who you are, what level of training you are, at to feel vulnerable but sometimes the greatest connection and i just thinking authentically and genuinely for myself with it whether it's a learning environment or just outside of work it's when we're willing to be vulnerable and i you know earlier on we were talking i think someone mentioned about check-ins and maybe it's a good segue to natania's comment around challenging circumstances and debriefing so i'm sort of interested to hear how you guys look at that together as colleagues between the r1s to r3s how are you working together as a team of residents to, to debrief, to check in? So as Darren was saying, I think, you know, amongst those, like uh, amongst the seniors, I think who already know each other, I think we already have some of those informal groups set up where we will just check in with each other. But um, Natanya is on the wellness committee and we were, she actually helped to lead one of our recent events, which was events and venties, which is an opportunity to get together to, you know, drink coffee together and just kind of rant about things that have happened and to help get things off your, off our chest. Um, Natania, I, I don't know if you want to speak more to that, but we also have things like ice cream rounds, which 
also allow opportunities for us to, you know, get things off our chest, do it in a very like casual way with facilitation from the resident wellness office as well. And I found that in the past that those have been really cathartic experiences. I know that it's been a bit more challenging to do it over Zoom though, because it's, you, you just lose that intimacy with the virtual setup and not actually being in a room with other people. But I heard so far that, you know, it, there are some connections being made and it can help with what people are going through. But I know it's a lot more challenging this year than it's been previously. Yeah, it's been, I agree, cha- more challenging. I think it feels a little more difficult over Zoom. But at the same time, it, it's also sort of the same. Like when when I've been in these uh, like events and venti sessions and we go into like small breakout rooms on Zoom and there's usually a senior, which is really nice because there's always somebody who's like there to facilitate and break the ice if like we don't all know each other among the R1s. And inevitably we do a lot of like talking about nothing for a little bit. And then somebody says something about something that was really hard. And then it's just like me too. Like all of us have the same experience. The last two times ago we did this like everyone in my room had something to say about imposter syndrome. Like this was like month three or four of residency and it was on the forefront of everyone's mind. And I think it's really nice to be able to share those challenging experiences with everyone. And it's certainly more difficult over remote settings, but it's not impossible. And we think we've tried and are trying to think of new ways on the wellness community to make that happen. Actually, you bring up the concept of imposter syndrome, which I find very interesting because, you know, I've, I've been teaching for 16 years and um, it's actually been a more recent phenomenon that people have brought up this terminology of imposter syndrome. Uh, I think it always existed to a certain degree, I guess, but like, I don't know, can you guys elaborate further? Because I don't think everyone's familiar with this concept, you know, as an attending or just like of imposter syndrome. So yeah, I don't know if anyone's brave enough to give it a go. I mean, I'm not saying you had imposter syndrome. I'm just saying like, there is this concept that uh, that people, they talk Tell me oftentimes they have that feeling when they're like an R1 or R2 and, and, and stuff like that, or even when they're, when they're staff, actually. Uh, some new staff say they feel like they, they're feeling imposter syndrome. So I don't know if anyone has a good definition or way to describe it. I guess it almost feels like you are, you, you have these res- role, like you have this responsibility as a resident at various stages of training and you're essentially faking it and hoping that you're not revealed. Like, you, you know, you have these knowledge gaps. Like, you know, that maybe like you're not good at managing these things or overnight when there's no staff and this presentation comes in, you will not feel comfortable managing it. And you're almost just always on edge waiting for that thing to happen where you are revealed and everyone realizes you're not good enough. And I don't know, I, I would say that's the simplest way I can, can explain it. I don't know if you guys want to add anything, but yeah, to be honest with you, I think that we all have felt it at different times. And I think one of the reasons why is we just put, I don't know, I, I put a ton of pressure on myself and, and a lot of the people around me put a ton of pressure on themselves. And I guess the coming back to Dr. Malhotra's question earlier about like what advice you could offer to, you know, medical students or junior residents. I think for me, what I learned, what I'm still learning is that on day one of a rotation, like you are not expected to know everything in that rotation. Like the purpose of spending a month on hematology is to gain exposure to hematology and by the end of the month achieve certain core objectives. Again, by the end of the month, you're not supposed to be a hematologist. You're supposed to have comfort with general hematology presentations. So I think this imposter syndrome arises out of these very high expectations and pressures we put on ourselves because we all are very high achieving, often type A personalities. And I guess now we're just labeling it. Whoops. That's interesting, you know, because I, I, when you put it that way, I think everyone, you know, remembers residency and medical school and having that sort of feeling. You know, I always felt like, because when sometimes when I do evaluations with people and I tell them they're doing a really good job, you know, you look at their face and they're like shocked, right? And, the, you know, and it's almost like you have to convince them that they're doing very well, right? And I, I don't know why that's the case sometimes, yeah, and I certainly think people are way too hard on themselves. And, you know, is there a way, you know, as attendings that we can kind of say, like, look, like, even at the beginning, like, we don't expect you to know everything, right? You're here to learn. I'm just expecting, like, I try and sit down with my team and say, you know, I just expect you to work hard, right? I expect you to, to be professional. I expect you to be responsible. 
I don't expect you to know everything there is to know about medicine because no one really knows everything there is to know about medicine. Like, does that help for someone to set out those expectations for you beforehand and say, like, we don't expect you to be like, I mean, some people do expect you to be an absolute genius, I think sometimes, because sometimes I get feedback from saying, I'm like, whoa, what are you guys expecting here? But like, does that help for us to have a sit down at the beginning of the rotate? Like, this is what I kind of want to get to people who are going to listen to this and who have trainees is like, how do we make these sort of things better for you? You know, how do we make your rotation? How do we make your experience better? It, it's always helped me to to know what you like the staff's expectations are right off the bat because as Darren was saying we all have those expectations of ourselves that you know you're going to know everything about nephrology when you start day one and that's just not the reality of it and I think with the whole sense of imposter syndrome you're always asking yourself how did I get here I'm not good enough to be here in the first place like I'm just faking it right now so to have the staff actually upfront say like these are my expectations I want you to learn makes a huge difference I think with our mindset going into it because I think it lessens some of that pressure off of ourselves to be just perfect right off the bat and like it provides an opportunity to be wrong but like also to be okay that you're wrong so I think it makes it more of a safe space to actually learn and just be a resident and to train in that way versus just automatically having those expectations right off the bat for ourselves. Yeah, because I worry about the pressure that people have to be perfect, right? We all know that a lot, you know, from time to time, we have residents that go on leave because they're too stressed out. And I worry that, you know, if your feeling is you have to be perfect, but you don't feel like you feel this imposter syndrome, and then you're a senior resident who's in charge, who's trying to make decisions, like, there's a disconnect there, right? Because you have to have a certain level of confidence in what you're doing and who you are, right? So we need to try and imbue you with that level of confidence, you know, and, you know, I can sometimes tell when people aren't confident in themselves. I'm like, you know, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably guilty of that as well. Like I do try and set the expectations, but you know, I often, I think it's great when a resident sometimes asks me, Oh, how are things going? Like, do you have any feedback for me? I probably should have, you know, done that myself, you know, after like a week of the rotation or something, or even just said, you know, I think you're doing a good, like, does that help for someone to kind of sit down and give you some feedback that's constructive or, I mean, the, the down, they're not always, you know, they might not always say you're doing, you're doing, you know, a perfect job. So I think sometimes attendings are afraid of like giving people feedback because if they suggest something, they're not sure how you're, you know, the trainee is going to take it. Right. Because once again, everyone wants to be perfect. So if someone asks for feedback and you say, well, you could, you know, I think you're doing a good job here, but you could do this, this, and this. And then you can sometimes note that the person's a little crestfallen. It's hard for us too, I would have to say, but like mm-hmm. in general, does that a helpful process or? I, I think that something that's been really hard for me throughout my training is learning to be more comfortable asking for feedback. And something that I've really enjoyed is when people just are feedback providers. Every time I present a case, I can think of staff that I've worked with who are particularly good at saying, that was a good presentation. Next time you do this, do this again. I really understood the way that you presented the HPI because your assessment and plan, like I was there when you, when you told me the assessment and plan, I agreed with you. And that is the type of specific feedback that helps me remember those moments that I did well. And then when I don't do well, or when things don't go as planned, or when they don't agree with my assessment, I have these other pieces of evidence where I can cognitively prove to myself that I've done things well, and it was maybe a gap in my knowledge, or I was really tired, or I didn't ask for help at the right time, or I didn't ask the right person for help, or maybe I actually didn't need help, and I could have done it on my own. And those are all great pieces of feedback that I've received that when surrounded by a halo of other pieces of good feedback make me feel like it's a more safe environment and make me feel like I'm doing the job I'm supposed to be doing. And that's really interesting, Natanya, that you you bring that up because it, it, you know, as Gerald was saying, it's important for staff and attendings to, to hear that perspective that you all are actually sharing about the feedback actually creates a safe space. I think sometimes, and I'm not saying this is across the spectrum, of course, that sometimes there's fear about providing feedback and the the concern of maybe conveying a a concern, which can be destructful or disrespectful. But uh, what I'm hearing from you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if we're creating boundaries as staff people and we're providing a safe space, 
we're giving constructive feedback, that's actually really supportive and even enhances the safe space that you're learning in. Absolutely. I think so. Because I think ultimately, we, like, we're, we're there to learn. And I think there's a certain excitement with knowing that you're getting better in your skills. And so I always find that it feels very reassuring to me when I have staff who actually really seem to care about what I'm learning about and that I'm actually like, getting something out of the day and that they're actually doing it in a way where I feel like their intentions are all about me learning. And so I, I, I don't really see it in, like, I never really take it in a malicious way at all when I get feedback like constructive feedback on things I can improve on when I think that their intentions are good at the end of the day. I don't want to switch topics, but I'm sort of keen to ask this question because you guys are learning and you're building on, again, I come back to it, but your professional identity. And some of you may have some interest in academics community, but irrespective of Warna, medicine is about being taught and teaching. So residents as teachers, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you how you guys are building that, how you guys, not you again, your program and not even your program, but your residents and your colleagues are building that. And is there sometimes discomfort? And maybe this goes to uh, Gerald, Dr. DeRosa's point about, you know, you're R1, but eventually you're going to need to be an R3 and have that confidence. And as you're going through your residency as you know, learning to be a resident as a teacher. So I would say that while teaching is, is challenging, I would say that for me, it's been the most rewarding part of becoming a senior resident. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it provides you with an opportunity to reflect on not only what you learned, but how you learned, and then look back at like the, your, your practical or theoretical approaches to problems and how you can distill those down into a simple process that you can then pass on to you know, a medical student or a junior resident. And I think the value of teaching as a senior resident, like as an R2, is that you're so close to the medical students and the R1s that you're actually able to provide very practical, sometimes simple solutions to common problems. And so, I don't know, doing that for me has been super rewarding. And it's, it's like my favorite part of being a senior resident. I think to that point, because it forces me to think back on, you know, how I learned something and the way I learned it. It also, it's like, it's like this positive feedback for me, knowing that like, hey, I actually know how to do this. You know, there's some, there's some like reassurance to that. It can be kind of nice throughout the day, not just with like helping junior learners to get to the point where they're really understanding something, but selfishly in a way, it helps me feel better knowing that I've actually learned something throughout my training that I'm now able to teach and pass this on forward to someone else. Is there any other stuff you guys want to talk about that like, yeah, nice to bring out in the open and just have people understand from the resident journey and stuff? Or One thing I was thinking about today was how tough it's been lately with the restrictions and just feeling like it was harder to be well as a resident with it being busier in the hospital and there's it just feels like there's more work and not really being able to feel like you can really catch a break with, you know, decompressing with your family and friends. And how I, I find that it can be smaller and smaller things that kind of just like set you off. It can just kind of tip you over because you're just never really finding a chance to really collect yourself and to come back to a point of balance. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that, but I, I had kind of noticed that for myself today when something just didn't work out. And I just felt like, everything was crumbling under me because I just didn't really feel like I had, you know, all of the, I just didn't really feel like I was in a good place overall. And I felt like it took me a lot longer to get back to a place where I felt more centered and more like myself and where I could be productive. And, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a little while since I've felt this way. And I think that it's because of the challenges that we're all going through right now. Mm. But uh, I, I'm curious to see if anyone's experienced that as well. I was going to say, I think you make a very interesting point. I think everyone is feeling this, yeah. right? And uh, I was just talking to one of my colleagues and uh, in, you know, one of the anesthesiologists that I was work, that I work with, and we were talking about how we're just done with COVID, okay? And because, you know, our pattern of practice is to work really hard and have something to work for, which for a lot of us are vacations, or like special, you know, things that, that you want to do, right? And so, you know, a lot of us, when we're in practice, we have this vacation. And sure, as a resident too, you, you know, you're waiting for your vacation week so you can go away somewhere sunny or something like that or whatever, you know, go travel. And we've lost that, right? So we are just working and working and working 
without those kind of carrots that we give ourselves in life. Would it help? Like, do you guys know that the staff, you know, and the nurses and everyone is feeling the same way? Like, would it help for us to talk about that sort of stuff? Like, you know, in a work setting, like, would you, you know, because I guess what I'm saying is potentially maybe each person is feeling like this is only them thinking that. Right. Whereas maybe if we just brought it out there and I said, you know, I'm I'm having a tough time as well. Right. Would it help you guys just to know that everyone's kind of or a lot of people are having similar challenges that 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 you're feeling as well? I definitely think so. I think it would create a sense that you're not alone for sure. And that because a lot of the times it's hard for us to get a sense of where other people are at if just because like our, our interactions are so much more limited now. I find that sometimes I feel like I'm going through things. I'm just having a bad day and it, it feels like everyone's just kind of grinding through and just trying to make it through their day, make it through their week. And so when I feel like I'm at like a low point, sometimes it feels like other people are just kind of moving on with their day because that's just, you just have to get through it because there's just no real end in sight right now. And you just have to kind of keep working at it. But I know also at the same time, that's just not a really sustainable way for me personally, because I just feel like if I don't have those breaks or ways to kind of get away from things, then I'm never, it, it's just not a great long-term solution for me. So I think it would be nice to be able to talk about it more openly and just to be able to share that with each other. Cause I know, I'm sure other people are going through this as well. Mm-hmm. I think it would also open up space for the different ways that COVID is impacting people. I think we all share the common experience of wearing more PPE and when we're on CTU, especially working with a lot more COVID positive patients or individuals under investigation, but everyone is also a person. And I've been really surprised by the variety of ways that my co-residents are impacted by COVID. You know, we have a lot of international medical grads in our program and people's families are separated. People are missing life events. Mm -hmm. People are missing their partners, their children, their families. I I can't go back to the United States to see my, my parents. People are afraid to go down the street to see their own parents. It's, you know, everyone is being impacted in a different way. And I think allowing a space for that helps everyone remember that we're all just humans. Just, you know, we all happen to be in this highly performing specialty where we are essential workers and have the luxury in some ways of going to work and seeing human beings and talking and caring for people. But we also are those human beings. Yeah, I think that's very important. You're right. I mean, I, we've had a few residents having challenges. And when you sit down and talk with them, like, you know, whether it's, you know, they could have a family member that's ill, that's in another part of the country, or in a different country, extremely challenging to deal with that. You have people with milestones, right, that have had to be, you know, people's weddings have had to be postponed, or truncated, you know, from what they dreamed of it being to, you know, some smaller proportion, right? Um, I mean, I can tell you personally, you know, my oldest daughter graduated, right? And that is supposed to be an event where, you know, you go to this big banquet with all the other parents and your kids and they go up, you know, on a, I, we didn't even get to see her walk up on the stage, right? And that is something as a parent that you kind of dream about, you know, your daughter, you know, your, your child graduating and just being there and, you know, clapping and, you know, just seeing that happen. And uh, I think we, we do forget that the, you know, I mean, the R3s, you know, they're going to finish. You know, I think of all the things we used to do as a program that we've lost, right? You guys had match day or the R3s had match day. We didn't have a match day party, right? We have the Whistler retreat, which we're still calling the Whistler retreat, but it's actually going to be over Zoom. But, you know, like it, that was an opportunity for everyone to get together, get out of town, really just have fun. And just, you know, bond as a, as a group, right? Even like an end of year barbecue, like what's that going to look like? When the R3s left last time, we tried to do something with the, since the weather was decent, we tried to do a little something with just the group of R3s here, but you usually have a barbecue and get everyone together, right? And really convey your appreciation. So it's just, we're losing a lot of those things. And I think if we don't remind ourselves that, that, that we are losing those sort of things, I think we, yeah, we, we stop thinking about the humanity of it, as you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, thanks for sharing, because it, 
did kind of uh, resonate a little bit and a lot. I think we're all suffering and we were suffering pre-pandemic. We're just intensely aware of it now in the pandemic. Um, and suffering sounds like a scary word, but it makes us human and it allows us to find meaning. And we have a choice to either decide to go get busy and deny ourselves the meaning, kind of push on through the day, as Carmen mentioned, or stop and be inspired by whatever's around us and, and know that there's meaning everywhere in everything we do. You know, I remember going to mortality, morbidity and mortality rounds, and it was really a great experience. Like you learn a lot, but there was a lot of these emotives that were put to the side. You know, you, you just didn't deal with those. And I often wonder since, you know, being in residency and even being a staff person, could we look at it differently and do mortality and morbidity rounds, but could there be compassion rounds, compassionate care rounds? And, you know, that's a separate topic I'd love to discuss sometime, but what I really, the root of it is, and I'd love to hear your guys' opinion is, why is compassion such a scary word? Like, if we can say we all suffer, well, the dichotomy of that, the antidote to that is compassion. So what is it about being a healthcare provider that we feel uncomfortable or about being compassionate? We, we were taught, we migrate, we navigate, we gravitate to medicine because of our compassion. But why can't we be compassionate with ourselves and our colleagues and set up that work environment, that culture of compassionate care as the norm, not something else? Personally, I love that. Like I wish, I do wish that we had that because we, we talk about it in these kind of casual kind of informal settings with our friends with our colleagues but it would be nice to be able to formalize it some way that you actually I think it, that actually would help to change that hidden curriculum of medicine where I think there's always that feeling and pressure that you, you don't want to be seen as like lazy or not doing work or not contributing and by doing so kind of forcing yourself through that grind as I, as I was saying before just like just continuously doing that work because it doesn't feel like you can let up on the work that you have to do because there's this expectation from yourself and this perceived expectation from other people that you need to do this work in order to be a part of this team and to be contributing to the medical community. But I think that we often just overlook that by not being compassionate to ourselves, we, we're totally doing ourselves a dis, a, just a complete disservice because I think it makes it so much more, it, it really just, it just augments that suffering for us. Cause it don't, I don't think it has to be so hard at the end of the day. Like it's, it, I think a lot of people talk about their lives in medicine um, when they look back on it as being so rewarding, but I think day to day when we go through it, it's, it, fe it constantly feels like an uphill battle. And I don't know that it has to be like that. So it really intrigues me to have that opportunity potentially maybe to have this compassionate round or compa compassionate care round so that we can actually talk about it. I think there's a space for it. And I'm kind of curious to see how that could roll out. Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, I think Samir bring up a good point. You know, uh, I've seen people that are so hard on themselves, you know, as a resident. And then, you know, when you get them to evaluate their student, they're like, oh, they're just learning, you know, they're, they're you know, they're doing a good job. They're trying their best. I'm like, well, you should turn that around to yourself, right? And say, you know, you're also learning, you're trying hard, you're doing your best. Like what you're valuing in some of these people, you know, that you're training, right? You should look at yourself and, and not put yourself at a pedestal that is, you know, different from what you, you know, what you expect from people that you're working with, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that would help sometimes. Like, you know, I, I just, I just feel like, that people don't treat themselves as well as they treat other people sometimes. Right. And, and I think that's important. You know, one of the things that, that I've been looking into too, with this big slog and, you know, and this thing, and it, it does have to do with compassion, but it also has to do with just awareness is, you know, this whole concept of, you know, how you view the world and how you view where you are colors, how you feel. Right. And so it's kind of like that. It's, it's a trite, you know, statement where someone says, you know, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? But I think that conceptually, that's something to me that I feel is sometimes important for us to just sit down and reset. Okay. And, and the way I look at it is that, I mean, you can always feel someone, you can always have someone who has a better situation than you, and you can always have someone that has a worse situation than you. But I, I try and rem remind people like sometimes to sit back, you know, take a breath, 
And, you know, one of the things that we did as staff people is we started a chat when we were really in the throes of COVID. And we said, this chat is not about COVID. It's not about medicine. It's about what you appreciate, you know, and we asked people to just say, say something that you appreciate that you're happy for in your life. And it was, I think a lot of people felt that that helped because as much as, you know, yes, this is a really tough time and stuff, you know, sometimes I, you know, I think if my own personal health is good, that's one thing that I'm very thankful for. You know, this is a tough job, you know, it, it requires a lot out of you, but you know, I feel fortunate at times that I have a job, right? I know people during COVID, you know, some people are losing their business. They're, they're worrying about certain things that, you know, I'm fortunate enough not to have to worry about. And, you know, of course, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you still can't, you know, have a tough time. But, you know, I'm curious as to what you guys think, you know, like, is that helpful to kind of do a cognitive reset? so to speak, you know, like I've been trying to do a lot of research into this. And, you know, a lot of things were like that keep a diary, you know, name one thing that you're thankful of each day, you know, try and kind of reframe things in a positive direction, right? Because I feel that sometimes people can spiral downwards, right? And start thinking like, my life sucks, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, this is, and you know, sometimes if you can spin it around and say, well, what are the good things that are happening in my life? Um, that sometimes we take for granted, you know, maybe we can help people feel better. I don't know what you guys think. Dar- Darren, what do you think? Does that make sense? Or Yeah, I think so. I will, I will start by saying that I'm not, like I have no affiliation to Headspace or <laughs> to mindfulness or meditation in any way, but I do think it's a useful app and it's something I've used for like the last four years or so. And one of the metaphors that they describe is, is this concept of the blue sky. And essentially what they're trying to get at is that, you know, your, your mind, like your baseline is this blue sky and there will be clouds of various sizes of various intensities, which may represent emotions or thoughts or feelings um, that can, that can kind of get in the way of that blue sky. But at the end of the day, what the purpose of, of mindfulness and what the purpose of, I think what you're getting at Dr. Rosa with these resets is, is to step back non-judgmentally look at these clouds and acknowledge that these clouds will pass and it's okay to observe these clouds for what they are and if they cause pain they cause pain the the pain that they cause does not you are not the clouds you are not the pain that you are experiencing it is just a sensation and and like anything it will pass and once everything passes you're left with again this blue sky so i don't know i i totally agree with what you're saying and I think that the exercise of stepping back and non-judgmentally observing what you're feeling, what you're thinking is super helpful. Headspace aside, but you've just kind of resonated one comment is that you're inside yourself, you're listening to yourself and you're realizing that things rise and pass away and they're never constant. And that's true because we live every day and the day doesn't stay the same forever. We know that it's a fundamental part of nature, but part of that too, in the time of COVID, we are always driving to be so socially connected and one of the things that you've just found is a tool in your toolkit and maybe others as well, the value of being introspective and being with yourself. And it almost like feels like we're flipping a coin and you know, the habits of the populace is so anchored towards we need to be socially connected. We need to be socially connected. And I don't disagree with that. But I think as well, I think Carmen mentioned or Natania or maybe all of you have mentioned that you can't be compassionate with the outside world until you're compassionate with yourself. So times and space to give yourself the time to be compassionate with yourself will then allow us to be more socially connected. And so I, I wonder, and I just prefer, I question the value of us almost saying, you know, when the, t- the beginning of the pandemic, they say we should be physically distancing and socially distancing, and they change the terminology because of the semantics, the perceived biases related to it. I also wonder how we can use this sort of approach to saying, we don't always have to be socially connected. Sometimes we can take a breath, take some space, as Dr. DeRosa said, and be internally connected because it's then and only then that we can actually start to become more socially connected and feel less, more vulnerable or less vulnerable to be more vulnerable. I think one of the things that, that we try to do as a wellness group is to offer things to individuals to choose. I think one of the biggest challenges, though, comes along with any sort of 
offering for wellness resources is that at the end of the day, everyone has to figure out what works for them. And it's so individualized. Um, I similarly use the Headspace app, but sometimes I just like to sit alone or I love to be outside. And I think that's one of the things that I think a lot of people who gravitate towards or come out here for residency tend to do is find a lot of peace and solace and reflection in hiking and in nature and camping, which has been so lovely for me to get away and prove that there's a world outside of the four walls of the hospital, which I think can be really hard to remember during a busy week. But when I'm intentional about it, it makes me feel better. So I think offering things and always making them optional and allowing people to the space to participate if that's what they need. And also knowing that it comes and goes. So you may want to participate in something like a Vents and Vensi session, or you may want to utilize you know, a subscription to X or Y thing. And then other rotations, you may not find that those are providing you what you need at that moment. And I think that's one of the things that makes me excited about being part of, you know, the wellness committee is like providing people the space to use their community and resources when that's what they feel that they need and mm. knowing that they feel comfortable asking people for other ideas when possible. So I guess one of the questions I have with the wellness committee and how we approach this is, right, is the premise is that we're um, giving these options to people and they're making a choice about, about using them. I worry sometimes that the people who need the most uh, help are not the people that are engaging with these efforts, right? And so how do we... Um, either through wellness or even, you know, practically, because they're not going to, you know, zoom in or stuff like that, practically on the ward, how do we get these, you know, engage these people who may be struggling, who don't feel comfortable? And, and I guess that goes back to my question, you know, if I'm an attending, and I'm sitting with someone, and there's five, 10 minutes, you know, is it okay for me to say, hey, how are things going? How's residency going? How are you feeling about things? Should we be doing that more? you know, as it, just to get people to talk, you know, would residents appreciate that? You know, once again, I don't want to pry into people's lives, you know, if, it, if it's not welcome, but I've often found the most rewarding time is to actually just sit with someone and say, Hey, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? What would you like to do in the future? Where'd you come from? Where'd you go to high school? You know, just like, just like stuff like that. Right. Do you like sport? You know, like, you know, if you get me talking about basketball, we'll talk about it forever, but I love sports. So, you know, like I'll talk about stuff like that. And it's just, you know, it doesn't have to be medicine all the time. Right. Um, but what do you guys think about that? If I, you know, if we remember as attendings to just kind of sit down and just say, Hey, how, how's it going? Do you think people would appreciate that? Would that give some people maybe an opportunity to bring things up in a safe space that they might not be able to do otherwise? I think it definitely would help to break the ice there. Because it feels like, because I think when it comes from the attending, it feels like there's a genuine interest and care in terms of getting to know the residents. And I think ultimately my experience with, you know, the individuals who I feel like are struggling or having a really hard time has been just to reach out to them individually. I think it's really tough to have, so far we, ha we don't have yet a completely coordinated effort through the wellness committee in terms of exactly identifying who's struggling and how to reach out but the way that we've kind of talked about it internally has been to like if there are people that we just come across in terms of like our juniors our co-residents who we have talked to and they're just having a really tough time I just try to maintain contact with them um, and I've definitely noticed that you know there are people are going through hard times mm -hmm. and people are you know sometimes needing to take time off and things like that but I think people appreciate knowing that someone is looking out for them and kind of cares that, you know, there's someone in the program that actually cares about what's going on to me. I don't want to cut anyone off, but I feel really compelled, Carmen, just to base to kind of jump off that and say there is the PHP, the physician health program. So if mm -hmm. there are colleagues and they can have that resource, it's 24 seven, it's available to all physicians and, you know, yeah, they can help with counseling service. And yeah, we can definitely include that in our upcoming emails for sure to make sure that people do know about this because yeah i've i've heard really good things about the physician health program um, and i know that you can text them and stuff even so the the threshold to actually communicate with the php is quite low 
One thing I just had a thought about right now is that actually one of the things I said that we don't have a coordinated effort yet for wellness, but one of the things that the resident wellness office is actually trying to set up is like a peer mentorship program where residents are identified or nominated into this role and have this role in terms of checking in with individuals. And it's not necessarily targeted to, you know, specific individuals who need extra help per se, but um, has been a program previously set up in other uh, programs across the North, across North America. So we're trying to roll that out now and the resident wellness office is really taking the lead on that right now. Gerald, it's been an amazing conversation. I've learned so much from you guys. Honestly, you guys have been really, thank you for being so kind of open and talking about the things that we've asked. But I'm really keen to ask you guys, R1, R2, what has surprised you about residency? I think I I'm fall into this category of people that put a lot of pressure on themselves. This is something I've done for my entire life. And something that has been really, really marks my best days are when I can sit down with a patient and talk to them as a person and really connect with them. And I am totally flabbergasted that I'm comfortable enough with all the things I have to do as a resident that I have time to do that. And I have found that the days where I feel the most accomplished, even if I got a bunch of medicine stuff wrong, are the days where I had the time, took the time and honestly prioritized it to sit down with my patients and talk to them about how they're doing, how we can help, and also who they are as people. And that has been honestly like the biggest joy of being a resident and being a doctor. And it makes it makes every day kind of worth worth coming to work and worth doing what I'm doing. Next. It's a tough one to follow. That was really good. I think what Dr. DeRosa and Natania have said very much ring true for me because I was just telling my partner today exactly like I, I was like, I can't believe I'm admitting all of these people and like my staff just trusts me to do all of this stuff. And, but then also I had three very lovely conversations where I just spent like half an hour each with, with my patients and, you know, like really got to know them and they were telling me things that they'd never told anyone before. And I was like shocked that they had this much trust in me. But I, I think kind of, you know, on top of all that, I'm, I'm really surprised right now because it's now my second year, just how quickly time has passed mm -hmm. as well. People say that, you know, you, you have to enjoy your residency years because then it, you're going to become a staff and then, you know, you, you'll kind of like miss that opportunity in your training to like really enjoy it. And I didn't really understand that until like, until all of a sudden I was an R2 and I was becoming a senior and I'm doing all these things that I like when I, I remember being a medical student and looking up to my seniors and thinking like, I'll never become like them. They're just so amazing. And now I feel like I'm in that position where I'm a senior and, you know, like the next three four years are going to fly by because mm -hmm. this last year already did. So I'm starting to really feel the clock ticking there. Yeah, for me, kind of the same thing. I think with the, with the steep learning curve and, and with the responsibility that you get so early, I think the other thing that surprised me was like, you actually become useful pretty quickly. Like you, you start to realize like, oh, I'm actually kind of good at a, like a thing or two, you know, which is like, which is kind of refreshing and nice. It's like, oh, wow. Like overnight for like, on your, like your second triage shift, like, wow, I can, like, I can do this. And like, that feels good. Then, then that imposter syndrome starts to slowly fade away. And then, I don't know, that, that feels, I don't know, it's nice. Okay, so uh, it's time to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Natanya, Carmen, and Darren for joining us uh, today. I'd also like to thank our producer, Nikki Thorpe of Bronick Consulting for producing this podcast today. I just want to remind people this podcast is made possible from our local facilities engagement by the doctors of BC. And always a uh, special thank you to our listeners uh, we invite you to connect with us on Instagram at BehindTheStethoscope at Yahoo.com. If you have any comments, any suggestions, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, and if you enjoyed the show and want to see it continue, uh, you can always consider a donation to the RCH Foundation with the podcast in mind. Thank you, everyone. Be well.